delighted to introduce uh, tonight's speaker. Uh, Professor Alan Knight is um, uh, recently retired from the chair in Latin American history at the University of Oxford. He is uh, a noted historian of Mexico, has published extensively on the history of Mexico, particularly the Mexican Revolution. Some of you may be familiar with his uh, two-volume history of, of, of the revolution. And he is also the author of a, of a trilogy on the history of Mexico, um, two volumes of which have appeared, and the third I suppose, is, is forthcoming. And a number of um, very influential articles on a, num on a series of, of topics of relevance to the history of Mexico, but also the history of Latin America, such as populism, um, race, um, and so forth. But today, Alan is going to talk on um, comparing the, the First World War and the Mexican uh, Revolution, and particularly focusing on the concept of total war. The title is uh, Total War, Mexico and Europe, 1914. Okay, uh, thank you for the introduction, the invitation. Thank you all uh, for coming. Um, there are, as you can see, some pictures to go with this. It's uh, a story that's quite sort of photogenic in a number of ways, um, although some are a bit grim, and I should warn you there's one coming up in a minute that's truly horrific, so I have to give the, you know, the standard disclaimer that some viewers may find some, some of this distressing. Uh, this talk was written for earlier in the year for a thing called the Luis Gonzalez Lecture at the Colegio de México, uh, and I felt a bit guilty about having another sort of centennial type of talk because, as you may know, Mexico has gone through a kind of orgy of centennials and bicentennials recently because of 1810, 1910, 2010, and um, they tend to sort of produce a great outpouring of stuff with rather more often quantity than quality. But this one did strike me as interesting. It's not being noticed much in Mexico. There is a sort of 1914 anniversary centenary, but that would be the Convention of Aguas Calientes, uh, and, of course, here in Europe, we are, particularly in Britain perhaps, considering the centenary of the First World War. So, again, more stuff is being written. There's lots of stuff being discussed. And you've even had a few... Uh, this is the horrific image. I hope you can get over this. Uh, uh, the rest is not so bad. Um, rather ill-advised interventions by various politicians about the significance of the First World War. Uh, but what I wanted to do when I made this comparison, which I'm going to try and do in this paper, it's going to come out, by the way, in Historia Mexicana next year, but that's going to be quite a long, this is a very compressed version, um, is to make this uh, comparison. And uh, there are sort of two ways you can do this when you, if people ask you about Mexico and the First World War. One is the more conventional connections. That's to say, what role did Mexico play in the First World War or how did the First World War impact on Mexico? I will say a little bit about that just to sort of clear the deck. So there are a few slightly interesting things, but that's not really my main concern. Uh, I'm much more interested, and I hope in terms of questions discussion, we can focus more on the, the, the other part of the paper, by far the longest part, which is comparisons, where I want to make the argument that if you have a concept of total war, which I'll try to define, you can make the argument that Mexico and Europe at the same time in 1914 both experienced a total war, which is a particular type of war with certain characteristics which have quite durable results. But I will quickly say a few words about connections. Uh, and I'll divide it very quickly into economic and political, geopolitical. The economic impact of the First World War on Mexico was actually not that great. But that was, of course, because they were in the middle of a great big revolution. So if you ask the question, it would be a bit like asking someone suffering from a, a heart attack whether the toothache is still giving trouble. In other words, the revolution, the heart, the, the heart attack, was that much more serious and destructive that the impact of the First World War in terms of the impact on trade and investment was really quite limited. So if you compare that with, as it were, other states in more normal situations like Argentina, uh, the, the impact of the First World War was quite serious in economic terms. And indeed, you could even argue that the sort of decline of the, the very strong, significant Anglo-Argentine economic relationship really dates to about 1914. I mean, Rory knows much more about this, so I hope you wouldn't sort of radically disagree. Um, and in Mexico's case, the economic impact of the war in some ways wasn't 
was, was almost more positive, I would argue, because, of course, the United States, which was Mexico's chief partner, not so much Britain, uh, grew during the war. There was a war-induced boom, and particularly for oil and mineral exports. And so the Mexican economy, although going through a dire situation in terms of basic consumption and living standards, was able to continue exporting. And in, indeed, exports of oil rose rapidly. Exports of minerals increased, particularly during the latter phase of the war. And so that quite dynamic export sector was very useful for the revolutionary government as it finally consolidated through the 19, late teens, 16, 17, 18. Uh, incidentally, as a footnote to that, I wouldn't exaggerate the importance of oil. There's a school of thought in Mexico represented by Lorenzo Mayer and one or two others who think Mexican oil was a crucial strategic resource. I don't think that's the case. It helped. Even if all the Mexican oil had been cut off, if the Germans had sabotaged the oil wells, as some feared, wouldn't have brought the Allied war effort to an end. The political or geopolitical impact of the war was also, I would argue, in some ways beneficial. Uh, obviously, Mexico's chief interlocutor, to use a kind of rather neutral term, in international relations, the United States again, and the United States was involved in the Mexican Revolution in a number of ways with a couple of big interventions, one in 1914 before the war, another during the war, uh, and the effect of the war from mid-1914 onwards was to restrain uh, potential U.S. intervention in Mexico. We can see a, a number of examples. I'm not going to go into this. I say it's not my main concern. The recognition of the Carranza government in 1915, de facto recognition, was done primarily not because the Americans much liked Carranza, some people have suggested, but because they wanted to try to promote a reasonably stable government. And Robert Lansing, then the Secretary of State, writes in his diary, the Germans want, in so many words, the Germans want trouble in Mexico. We must try and damp down and stop trouble. They want a set of competing factions. We want one stable government. So the recognition of Carranza done, I think, rather grudgingly, was driven in part by geopolitical world uh, considerations. And then again, a year later in 1916, when Pancho Villa, disgruntled, went across the border, shot up the border town of Columbus, New Mexico, election year in the United States, Woodrow Wilson kind of had to do something. My argument is that he could have done a whole lot more and a whole lot worse. Contemporary cartoon of Uncle Sam jumping over the fence and chasing Villa. because uh, they chased him for about a year and they never caught him. Uh, however... It's arguable that had there been no war distracting the U.S. at this point, as submarine warfare developed, the likelihood of the U.S. entering the war increased. And so I think actually that was a serious restraining uh, influence. Um, this is the poster that was doing the rounds uh, trying to catch Via. As I said, they never did actually manage to catch him. And the last item in the geopolitical story I just want to mention quickly uh, is the famous Zimmerman telegram which was the offer made by Imperial Germany to Mexico to join a sort of alliance, which would also include Japan, uh, whereby uh, Mexico would invade the US and recover the lost territories of the Southwest. Well, actually, they recovered Texas, New Mexico. Japan was going to get California. It was a completely crackpot scheme. Um, it was dreamed up by people in the uh, German Foreign Office. Uh, it was a rather desperate throw. It was connected again to the submarine warfare strategy. The Americans were very likely to enter the war. This was a possible way of distracting them further. But of course, the Mexicans and indeed the Japanese had no interest in taking the bait. It would have been a suicidal measure. So in, in, in the end, the Zimmerman telegram, I don't think, added up to very much, certainly not in, in respect of Mexico. You can argue that it helped or slightly accelerate, accelerated the US entry into the war, but again, I don't think it was the recent scholarship says it probably wasn't decisive. So that's the simple story and the connections. Now I'm going to move on to what I think is more interesting, which is the comparison under the heading of total war. So first I want to say a word about what total war might be as a concept. There haven't been very many total wars. Uh, if you just take the Americas, uh, perhaps three or four, the American Civil War probably, Paraguay's resistance, the Triple Alliance in the 1860s, same time, Cuban independence struggle in the 1890s, the Mexican Revolution, a domestic form of total war, I would argue, and perhaps the Chaco War of the 1930s. Now, other people may have their candidates, and uh, as I'm going to suggest, there's no very strict kind of metric of how you say what is a total war. It's a subjective judgment, but there aren't that many of them. However, 
The notion that the revolution was a total war and that the military aspect of the revolution is rather important uh, is not something that historians of Mexico have spent much time on. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for this, I think. One is a lot of historians sort of look down their nose a bit at military history. You know, military history uh, is seen as history of usually men, um, elites, uh, it's a sort of top-down, traditional, what sometimes in Mexico is referred to as the Historia de Bronce. That's bronze history means it's the guys who have bronze uh, statues dotted around here and there. So it's very unfashionable, uh, and even more so perhaps because history has taken a more sort of social-cultural turn. Now, there happen to be a couple of very good military or historians with a strong military interest here, so, you know, you're big exceptions to the rule. One even works on, on Mexico. But I think, unless you would disagree with me, that that is, has been a tendency. Of course, it doesn't follow that military history has to be top-down historia de bronce. And in, in the case of Britain, you have a long tradition, at least going back to John Keegan, in the face of battle, where the experience of the common soldier, the rank-and-file battles viewed from the ground up are important, but that's not been done much in Mexico uh, for the revolution, as far as I'm aware. Now, the other reason, I'll say a little bit more about this, why I think the war, the revolutionary war, is somewhat neglected, is because it's often seen by historians as what a uh, contemporary participant, Martin Luis Guzman, referred to as una fiesta de balas. That's a festival of bullets. In other words, an awful lot of bullets are fired, people are charging around on horses looking kind of folkloric, making a lot of noise, but at the end of the day, it's actually not that murderous or deadly. And just to give you, I'm not making this up, just to give you an example, a rather good book that came out recently called Forced Marches, by, edited by Terry Rougely and Ben Fallow, who was actually here in this room not that long ago, so I'm being a bit disloyal here because I'm about to put the boot in when he's not here. Um, very good historians, although interesting, they're both originally historians of Yucatan, which I think might be significant because the revolution was not such a big deal in Yucatan, so maybe that encourages this perspective. And they state, just to give a few examples, that the figure of a million lives lost in the revolution is, they say, a number from nowhere. Well, it isn't a number from nowhere. In fact, it's an underestimate, as I'll go on to suggest. They say, quote, the best estimates... They actually quote a 1966 master's thesis for their best recent estimate. So that's wrong again. Um, they say that the best estimates suggest that the bulk of population loss due to the, in the revolution was due to emigration and disease. I'll question that. And finally, they say, the revolutionary armies were simply not that lethal and were in no way comparable to European armies in the First World War. And I want to also show that that's not correct. And in a way, I think this view that the Mexican Revolution and Mexican fighting was kind of pretty amateurish and, and ineffective is almost part of that broad syndrome whereby the Latin Americans in general, or the Mexicans in particular, just can't really get anything right. Now, normally it's something like industrialization or democratization or development or the rule of law. In this case, of course, it's killing each other. So you could say, actually, you know, it's rather good the Mexicans are not as lethal as, say, Europeans. But I don't think it's, it's true. Uh, they do add one other thing. They say that one reason for stressing it's a fiesta de balas is because it goes against the national stereotype, the national myth that the revolution was very deadly. The trouble is, I think the myth is about right. And there are some national myths in Mexico that are more right than wrong, and we should accept them to be right and not overturn them just because they're, quote, myths. So I think military history is neglected even though it's very obviously important because the revolution was, at the end of the day, a military struggle and the change that happened would not have happened had there not been extensive fighting and the final outcome was determined on the battlefield, as I'll go on to suggest. Now, to make the comparison with Europe, which obviously I'm trying to do in opposition to Rougely Fallor and, and others, uh, requires me first to try to say what total war is. As I said, they're ra rather unusual events. I've suggested a few possible um, parallels. So ca can I go a bit further in trying to clarify what it is? Uh, I can't come up with any way of, of, of sort of calculating it. I mean, I thought, could you do it, you know, in terms of per percentage of population involved? I will give some figures in a minute, but I'm not sure where you would draw the line as to when a total war becomes a not total war. Michael Howard, who is the really the sort of big figure, the doyen of military historians in Britain, defines it quite simply as a war involving the total mobilisation of all resources of society for a prolonged struggle which he doesn't say has to be either international 
rather than civil. So I think it's legitimate to say that either the Mexican Revolution clearly is a civil war, I think you can legitimately apply the concept to either. Clearly, international civil is different in a number of ways, but not necessarily in terms of totality. Now, of course, complete totality, I mean, a, a society in which not everybody was fighting, would just not be viable. There were always regions and sectors that were much more quiet and less belligerent, as they were in the First World War in Europe. Uh, in 1916, the American consul down in uh, Yucatan, Progreso, reported back, uh, peace is raging down here as usual. Slight exaggeration, because actually a certain amount of trouble was going on in Yucatan, but you know he was right, Yucatan was much quieter than Chihuahua or Morelos or many other parts of uh, Mexico. So what does a total war involve? Now this involves, for me, a quick detour into European uh, history and the concept of total war. It seems to me it involves really two elements. The first is mass mobilization of citizens on a, on a grand scale. We first see this, um, I think, with the French Revolution in the 1790s. I know people, usually French people, like to see the French Revolution as like the first big bang of, quote, modernity and all the rest of it, which is sometimes a bit exaggerated. But in terms of mass warfare based on very large citizen armies, I think uh, this is probably a correct view. And, of course, that goes with an appeal to basic sentiments and ideologies. So in the case of the French Revolution, a combination of a revolutionary ideology plus uh, nationalism. And this is, it coincides with and helps to fuel a great expansion in the size of armies. And this is a famous diagram um, done by uh, Charles Minard, which was, is one of the first sort of graphic flow charts in history, uh, showing uh, Napoleon's army in 1812, uh, starting on the left, and as the lines, first it's a sort of this puce pink line, and then as he turn, gets to Moscow, turns around, comes back, it's the black line, and you can see it's getting smaller and smaller, and there's a correlation at the bottom with temperature. It's a very neat sort of historical depiction of the advance on Moscow and the retreat. I put it there because I quite like it, but also because it shows something. If you look at the beginning, the size of that army which set out to invade Russia in 1812 was, according to this figure, a little over 600,000. I have seen even bigger figures going up as high as 800,000. Now, that, that is an enormous figure compared to earlier 18th century wars. Uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia, known as a kind of great military strategist, never commanded an army of more than about 40,000. Uh, if you just do a very, I know that's Prussia, not France, but if you roughly uh, make the comparison, you're talking about a 15-fold inc increase in the size of the army in about 50 years. And it clearly goes with mass citizen recruitment, uh, an appeal to nationalism, and also to a form of warfare which involves high stakes. Uh, these are not limited, pragmatic, dynastic wars in which you lose a bit of territory, you win a bit. These are actually wars that involve the overthrow of states and social systems, which is, of course, what Napoleon uh, achieved, for better or worse. And he was also, also of course, absolutely prodigal in the use of human resources. I mean, the casualties also go up as the numbers go up. This is nothing or very little to do with population increase. The military size goes up, as I said, about 15-fold, at a time when the European population only grows by 25%. So this is not due to demographic increase, it's due to a new form of warfare. However, these early 19th century wars were, were not industrial. In fact, if you look at the technology that was used in this period, it's pretty much the same as right through the 18th century, going right back to the, to the early 18th century. Then, if any of you know the little song, Quando, quando Mambrú se fue a la guerra? Um, which was back in the War of the Spanish Succession, Marlborough, uh, pretty sort of inefficient smoky gunpowder, muzzle-loaded guns, I, you've got to load them from the, from the muzzle, which takes time and is complicated, you've got to do it standing up, a lot of cavalry charges with sabres and lances, transport by horse or ox cart. Battles had to be quite short, day or two, because you just couldn't keep on for very much longer. Uh, through the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution, there's a dramatic change in warfare because of the industrial inputs. Uh, the production of weapons become, we weapons become more powerful, more precise. Output becomes much greater, and the weapons are more deadly. You now get rifles, 
Now, a musket is not a rifle. A rifle is a generic term, but it means it's rifled. It's much, it shoots much further and more accurately. They are breech-loaded, so you can reload much more quickly. Uh, it also actually makes citizen recruitment easier, because to load a muzzle-loading rifle, or sorry, musket, was pretty complicated. You had to work in it, but you could get people to use breech-loaders quite quickly. Uh, you could also fire them from a, a, a lying-down prone position, um, you had much more powerful artillery, both heavy artillery, mobile field art artillery. So you had a shift, you could say, from uh, artisanal to industrial warfare. Now, uh, of course, towards the end, you also have uh, machine guns becoming much more uh, deadly and in wide use. Now, this, this is the Battle of Omdurman in the Sudan uh, in the 1890s. This is British forces, uh, a battle in which the so-called dervishes, were, were massacred in huge numbers given the sheer superiority of European colonial firepower, the use of both rifles and artillery and machine guns. And uh, I would sort of argue that, in a sense, what was tried out in colonial settings, to some extent it had been tried out in the American Civil War in the 1860s, becomes the norm in the early 20th century, both in Europe and, indeed, in Mexico. You also, of course, have railroads which now can deliver vast numbers of both people and material to the front. So the front becomes a kind of funnel through which you can force large numbers of both soldiers uh, and also a sort of industrial means of killing people. A final note to that, of course, we always think of the First World War as being a highly static form of trench warfare, which is certainly true of the Western Front. Um, that's not a feature of total war necessarily. The Second World War, you could argue, was also total, but much more mobile with a different technology. It does so happen, however, and this is also relevant in Mexico, that the nature of warfare uh, around this time, circa 1914, favoured the defence because particularly of the use of rifles, machine guns, trenches and the rest of it. Right, now after that excursion, let me get back to uh, Mexico. And I'm going to start with a slightly sort of grim set of calculations which have to do with casualties in the revolution. And this is partly to refute the notion of a sort of pretty kind of folkloric fiesta de balas. Uh, by far the best demographic estimate of deaths in the revolution is actually the much more recent one by Bob McCarr from uh, Minnesota, who, because we all know the 1921 census was very bad, it came right at the end of the revolution, didn't count a lot of people, so it looks like the population falls. So some people jumped to the conclusion that was all due to the bad census. Well, it was a bad census. However, if you work with later censuses, notably 1930, which was much more effectively done, you can, Makar shows, go back and reconstitute uh, sections of the population by age. He does it also by sex, male and female, to get an idea of how many people were killed during the decade of armed revolution between 1910 and 20. Now, what Makar shows, I think it's pretty convincing, is that the revolution produced what he calls a demographic deficit of over 2 million. Uh, now, th this takes a bit of working out. I don't want to be too technical. I'm not a demographic historian myself anyway. The population of Mexico, absent the revolution, would have been a little over 2 million bigger than it actually was. The, the population to begin with was 15 million, so you're talking about quite a large slice of the population. How do you arrive at this figure? A quarter, about half a million, are lost births. That's to say Mexicans who were not born because of the conditions of revolution. A further 10%, 200,000, are immigrants. This was the first great wave of migration from Mexico to the U.S., particularly the push factors of the revolution, but also the pull factors of the American war economy, which I mentioned at the beginning. Nevertheless, that only gets you to about a third of the total. So you're left with something in the region of 1.4 million, a bit less than 1.5 million, of people who actually died, who are not lost births, who are not migrants. Now, it's certainly true that disease was very important. There were big outbreaks of cholera, typhus, and at the end, in 1918, the Spanish influenza, which of course killed a lot of people in Europe as well, tends to kill more people if they're uh, ill-fed and in bad conditions. However, what Macar finally shows is there's an interesting breakdown in deaths, uh, taking into account that 1.4 million, in which many more men died than women. The figures he comes up with is, is that there's a difference of about 400,000. 900,000 men died, 500,000 women. Now that 400,000 
difference has to be down principally to the fighting. There's no good reason to think that the disease or epidemics would have killed more men than women. One might almost have thought the opposite. So it's reasonable to conclude, and I did check with him to make sure I'd understood this. He said, yes, this is what I'm saying, that something in the region of 400,000 men died as a result of the revolution. Women fought as well. I'll give you some examples, but not in nearly the same numbers. Uh, there are soldaderas, but actually many soldaderas were not actually combatants. So if we assume it's reasonable that about 400,000 people died in the violence of the revolution, not migrations, not epidemics, that is 2.7% of the Mexican population. That is considerably more than the percentage of the UK population that died in the First World War, which was 1.6%. The German proportion was a good deal higher, 3%. So the Mexican and the German figures are about on the same scale. This is also borne out if you look at individual battles. Now this bit I think is a bit tedious, so I'm going to kind of more or less skip it. But if you take a number of key battles, Torreon, Federal Garrison loses 5,000, uh, Federal Army virtually destroyed at Zacatecas a couple of months later in the summer of 1914, at least 6,000 dead. Celaya, uh, a year later, the Villistas lose 6,000. If you start to add this up, it becomes quite plausible, I think, that you reach that figure of around 400,000. Uh, now, I admit it is complicated because when you look at figures of what they call in, in Spanish bajas, loss, losses, casualties, it can include a whole range of different items. Uh, it can mean dead. It can mean wounded, it can mean taken prisoner, it can mean fled from the battlefield, dispersos, as they sometimes say. Now, of course, some of the wounded then became dead anyway, but it's not an easy calculation to make. Um, I did take a look at some factors which I think are interesting, not just in terms of the sheer calculation of corpses, but also something to do with the, the nature of the war and how it progressed. Um, in 1913, as the revolution really began to sort of reach its peak, the revolutionary leader, Carranza, revived an old decree by Benito Juárez in the uh, 19th century, based on the war of the French intervention, decreeing that all federal officers, the federal army was the central government army the revolutionaries were fighting against, uh, all officers who were captured would be executed, uh, which was done. The guy on the left, that's Pancho Villa on the right, the guy on the left is Rodolfo Fierro, an extremely nasty, sadistic, probably a psychopath of some sort, who um, shot an awful lot of people in the course of the revolution and supposedly would line up officers in threes and try to shoot them all at once to save bullets because I think he found it um, quite uh, interesting. Uh, another little anecdotal case, at the battle or the siege of Chilpancingo down in the south where the Zapatistas unusually formed quite a large army to defeat a large federal garrison, the defeated uh, general, federal general, General Canton, was allowed to survive a couple of days to bury his son, who had been killed in the, in the fighting, at the end of which he was then executed as well. So there was a fair amount of basic execution, particularly of federal officers. Um, and as a sort of footnote to the footnote, another aspect I think is quite interesting is the nature of these... Uh, firing squad incidents. There's a kind of, to use a slightly pretentious term, a performative ritual that goes on in these firing squad incidents. Now this is a very famous one, it's probably a little bit embellished. Uh, this is uh, Francisco Villa, Pancho Villa, who is standing and about to be executed by a federal uh, firing squad uh, for various crimes he'd allegedly committed. And the norm, when you, before you shot someone, was that you would at least um, uh, speak to them, you would give them a cigarette, a drink. Um, you might even ask if they'd like to hear a song. There was a famous case of Cheche Campos, another old rebel who was shot, and he said, I would like, uh, pour me three fingers of, uh, I think it was Sotol or Mezcal, and play El Abandonado or something. And they, they're sort of obliged. And there's lots of sort of stories, there are lots of ballads, corridos, of how people died bravely in front of the firing squad. Villa actually managed to sort of blag his way out of it. What you can see him doing here is talking to the firing squad, trying to prolong the, the moment, and finally, at the last minute, this is why it's almost too good to be true, uh, a telegram arrives from Mexico City, staying the execution, he's put in jail, he survives, he later escapes from jail, and goes on to become the great leader, the great Caldeo of the Northern uh, Revolution. Well, 
Si non è vero è ben trovato. I mean, it's a good story whether it's, uh, whether it's true or not. But what it does, uh, I think, suggest... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make the case for high casualties and firing squads, but I think also it's interesting, and I'll come back to this in a minute, that even that the firing squad did at least go through a sort of ritual that had an element of, of chivalry in it. Well, as I said, there's another incident I'll, I'll come to in a moment. Now, while it's true that the uh, revolutionaries adopted a clear policy of executing officials, officers, um, it should be said that the Federal Army, that's the regular Central Army, first of Porfirio Diaz and later of Victoriano Huerta, adopted very extreme policies of repression. This is a, a woodcut showing uh, Federal troops. You can see there that the Federals from the way they're dressed uh, burning a village in Morelos, Morelos being the state where Zapata, Zapatismo were very strong. Uh, so in these contexts, what you had was a form of so-called asymmetrical warfare, a regular army, um, very repressive, destroying villages, often congregating the population in so-called concentration camps. That's where we, we get the term. And indeed, in this sense, the Mexican army, particularly this is 1913, it went on to 1913-14, uh, really emulated what was going on or had gone on in various colonial conflicts elsewhere. One thinks of the Spanish repression in Cuba in the 1890s, the American repression in the Philippines at about the same time, uh, and the British in South Africa. And in fact, Victoriano Huerta, who was the Mexican president slash dictator at this time, uh, was quite fond of chatting to the British minister to Mexico, Lionel Cardin. They were quite chummy. And um, Huerta used to ask Cardin, you know, how did you Brits manage to deal with those Boers down? I don't even knew they were Boers, but, you know, the South Africans. And what methods did you use? And he had supposedly picked up ideas about building blockhouses to protect the railroads, defoliating the, the, the forest on either side so you could um, see what was going on, and using the system of so-called concentration, which was used in Cuba and South Africa, uh, where you take the civil population, stick them in a camp, and then anybody who's out in the countryside can be assumed to be hostile. I think in Vietnam that happened as well. Um, now, this obviously created a great deal of resentment. It explains why the, the, the Revolutionary War was a, a war of, of, of no quarter. Whereas, however, as I've said, the, the revolutionary policy was to execute officers, the treatment of the federal uh, rank and file, the ordinary common soldiers, was, you could say, much more humane or at least uh, pragmatic. And the reason for this was quite simple, that the federal rank and file, I'll develop this in a moment, were largely forced conscripts. Uh, nobody in their right mind volunteered to be in the federal regular army. So the revolutionary policy was if you rounded up a load of prisoners, you shoot the officers and you let the rank and file go free, quite a lot just jumped over to the other side and joined uh, the revolution. And another pragmatic reason for doing this was because there was no very obvious thing to do or place to put prisoners. Uh, Niall Ferguson, in his book The Pity of War and I rarely say I have a good word for Niall Ferguson, but I actually think The Pity of War is a pretty good book, uh, refers to, has a section, what he calls The Captor's Dilemma. You know, it's like The Prisoner's Dilemma, but this is The Captor's uh, Dilemma. What do you do with prisoners in a war? Now, in Europe, in the First World War, there were something like 8 million prisoners. About a quarter of all losses were down to people being captured and held as prisoner. Uh, now, in Mexico, this virtually doesn't happen. I mean, this is a big difference between Mexico and Europe in the First World War. Uh, the only thing you could call a prisoner of war camp, this is not a terribly uh, enlightening picture, but this is a picture uh, of uh, some Mexicans and others at Fort Bliss, Texas. And for a while, there were about, I think, 3,000 uh, federal prisoners held in Fort Bliss just across the border. They'd fled from Mexico across into the US following a defeat at the hands of Pancho Villa. They were put, as John Reed, the journalist, uh, said, he went and visited a vast corral, not very pleasant, but I think they pretty much mostly uh, survived. And in Mexico itself, you never hear of prisoner of war camps. They don't exist. Uh, and the reason, I think, is that it just was not cost-effective. Uh, you would have had to have maintained surveillance. It would have cost you time, resources, um, 
And so basically the solution, as I said, quite pragmatically and ruthlessly, was you shoot the officers and let the rest of the rank and file go free. Many will join you anyway. So you don't get, for example, the uh, horrific experience during, as in the American Civil War of constant... uh, prisoner war camps, such as the notorious Andersonville one in Georgia, uh, where a lot of Union prisoners died in appalling circumstances. That just doesn't happen. Now, to advance the argument a bit further, I want quickly to suggest a a sort of dynamic chronology of the revolution. So far, I've talked in general terms about total war and about how, in roughly statistical terms, this does look to me like a total war. However, the revolution clearly goes through dynamic stages. Uh, There are four, essentially... And I'll just touch on three, first off, and introduce them and then develop it a bit. The first, between 1910, when the revolution starts, and 1913, is what I refer to just now as a kind of asymmetrical warfare, a popular insurgency from the ground up, directed against the central government and the federal army, first of Porfirio Diaz, and then, in some senses, Madero. Madero is a democratic leader, but in many ways he then steps into Diaz's shoes. That lasts until early 1913, when there's a military coup, there's a new uh, leader takes over, kills Madero, takes power, he's Victoriano Huerta, and he sets up essentially a military dictatorship uh, with a vast expansion of the army, which I'll mention. At this point, the revolution has to become much more systematic, large, powerful and conventional. So it goes from asymmetrical war to a more conventional set of campaigns of regular army, Huerta central government versus the revolutionary armies, particularly of Villa and others. The third and final phase I'm going to touch upon comes with the fall of Huerta, which coincides almost exactly with the outbreak of the First World War. Huerta is defeated and goes into exile. And at that point, the revolution splits into two big factions and you have one last big bout of conventional war. But now, instead of old regime versus revolution, it's two revolutionary forces fighting each other. Uh, roughly Villa and his people against Carranza and his people, and I'll touch on that. And although in terms of conventional warfare it's similar, there are substantial differences because these are two revolutionary armies. There's a fourth phase uh, I will skip over because it's not so interesting and, and relevant. So let me very quickly say a bit about each of these because there's a distinct character attached to these three phases. The first, as I said, 1910-11 through to the end of 1912-13 is a form of asymmetrical warfare uh, during which the revolutionaries are usually adopting forms of guerrilla war against a central uh, regime with a federal army. That regime and army were initially considered unbeatable. All the smart money was that the Diaz regime could not be beaten, that any revolution revolt was a waste of time. And indeed, it's true that previous uprisings in 1906-1908 had failed. That of 1910, however, progressively succeeded. Uh, It succeeded particularly in the north, but then in parts of central Mexico as well, much less in the south. Now, in trying to explain why the revolution succeeded and where, I'm not going to go into the various grievances, because that's a whole social-political story that takes us in another direction. However, if you assume that to have successful uprisings you need not only grievances, that's the sort of fuel that makes people take up arms, but you also need some facilitating conditions. You need to know who and why can take up arms and have an impact. That is more relevant because it's to do with the actual fighting. Now, it's noticeable that in the early fighting in 1910-11, certain groups and regions are in the van. They are by far the most important. A classic example are the so-called military colonists or military colony communities up in the far north of Mexico, particularly in Chihuahua. These were communities set up on the distant northern frontier, beginning in the late 18th century, going on through the 19th, and these were by definition frontier communities sent there to bring civilization and to combat the so-called Indios Barbaros, the barbarian Indians of the north, Apaches and Comanches. And that's what they did. In fact, that war against the Indians really only uh, began to come to an end in the 1880s, about a generation earlier. And it's not coincidental that those communities, which had a long history of military mobilization and self-help and organization, were very important. Certain groups of people are also noticeable. Uh, bandits, for all kinds of obvious reasons, make rather good natural guerrilla fighters, people like uh, Pancho Villa himself, his sidekick Tomas Urbina, quite a few others. 
Border smugglers are very important along the northern border. Uh, Arieros, that's muleteers, people who take mule trains through the mountains, particularly mining camps, know the country, they're tough, they're used to using both horses and mules and guns. And finally, a broader category of sort of village leaders, leaders of uh, village communities, men who, if you like, command respect, who are also uh, very prominent. Now, at the beginning of the revolution in 1910-11, and continuing for a couple more years, the early revolutionaries are very poorly armed because they basically don't have resources. They don't have ample access uh, to weaponry. Now, these are this is a sort of squadron of Yaqui Indians from the extreme northwest of Mexico, the state of Sonora, who played a very big role in the revolution for many years. As you can see, most of them are armed with bows and arrows. Incidentally, bows and arrows could be quite effective, and there was a good deal of fighting, particularly up in the sort of rough scrub country up in Sonora, where bows and arrows proved to be quite effective. However, um, they're not ideal. You need more than bows and arrows. So you find the early revolutionaries being described as having shotguns, old muskets, machetes, knives, uh, bows and arrows. They're, They're very primitively armed, Uh, Whereas the central government army, the regular army of Diaz, um, is is clearly much more better, better, is much better armed. In terms of guns, the classic gun of the revolution, the the classic rifle, was the Winchester 303. And again, there's a whole sort of literature and lots of songs and things about the Trenta Trenta. Um, It actually wasn't a very good gun for fighting battles. I don't know anything about guns, personally. I've learned this from books. I assume it's true. I if you read it in a book probably true. Um, the, the trouble with the Winchester was it was a hunting rifle, so if you shot too much with it, it got too hot to hold, which was a sort of, uh, somebody who, who knows about these things, so I'm glad you're nodding wisely here. Um, the, the Federal Army was equipped with, with German Mauser 7mm rifles, which were for fighting, and you could fire them much more rapidly. Of course, they were, these were all breech-loading uh, and so, you know, it was a, be- a much better weapon. They had virtually no artillery. Uh, one intrepid revolutionary up in the north managed to steal a cannon from the main plaza in El Paso and lug it across the border into Ciudad Juarez. But you never hear about it doing much once he'd done that. So, again, they, they didn't have much. Um, th- this is just one other... It's a- it's a weird picture from the other end of Mexico, Chiapas, of a couple of Indian recruits um, down there, uh, Lacandon, or Chamula, probably Chamula Indians. Um, again, just to suggest that in the early days of the revolution, this is very primitive in terms of simple organisation and uh, military technology. Now, on the federal side, you had both the federal army of about 20,000, and you also had the famous Mexican rurales, the rural police, who in some ways were the sort of first line of defence of the regime against rural insurrection. And these were quite uh, famous, rather romantic characters. If you read travel accounts of Mexico in the 1900s, um, they'll often talk about the, the, the rurales. They're sort of tough, and they, drive, they ride around on these horses with big sabres and guns. There's another one of them sort of... I'm not sure whether that's... Yeah, I think it's Mexico City... Um, they, they look very sort of tough and macho and impressive. In fact, the Rurales were in many ways a sort of, uh, I would say, a, a kind of symbol of the Porfirian regime. On the outside, look very efficient. All the research that's been done by a lot of people, me to some extent, shows that actually the, the rural police were a very corrupt, inefficient lot. I mean, these, they had a, 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 a probably sort of younger, more dashing-looking ones would ride around the streets of Mexico City. But your, your average rural was out there in some provincial town, usually running a cantina with his finger in lots of pies. They were old, they were inefficient. And so the idea that these would be the kind of front line, they were like the Royal Mountain, Canadian Mountain Police, they would be the front line against rural rebellion, they did very little at all. They were unsuccessful. And so... Very early on it became clear in, in, in the spring and summer of 1911 that the, the revolutionaries, despite their poor armaments, uh, because of their popular support, crucial recruitment of some communities, uh, could dominate large areas of the countryside, particularly in the north, to some extent in the centre. The federal army, less so the rurales, could control the major towns. A, a kind of stalemate, therefore, uh, developed. And this actually continued, I'm going to skip over a bit here, this continued into 1911-12 when Madero took power. He was the early leader of the revolution, a Democrat. But he faced much of the same 
problems because the revolution continued. And people like Zapata in the south and Orozco in the north continued the revolution. But again, there was this disjunction between, on the one hand, a well-equipped but small federal army dominating the cities and sporadic localized guerrilla warfare. They couldn't dislodge the federals from the cities, but neither could the federal government control much of the countryside. Now, the second phase begins in early 1913, when this guy, Victoriano Huerta, um, takes power by a military coup, uh, takes Madero prisoner, uh, has him assassinated, and proceeds quite quickly to set up a military dictatorship. With this goes a very rapid expansion of the federal, i.e. the regular army. Uh, the, the figures are pretty untrustworthy, partly because a lot of corruption was involved, and the more men you had in your padron, on your sort of list, the more money you could claim. So one has to, one has to deflate these figures. The old Porfirian Diaz army was about 20,000. By the summer of 1914, Huerta's government claimed to have a quarter of a million. So you're talking about an expansion of 10 or 12-fold uh, in the space of about three or four years. And if you just do a rough calculation, it means that to begin with, about one in 600 Mexicans were in the military, and by 1914, one in 30, if you assume that the, regu that the regular army and the revolutionaries were about equal. That may be a, a slightly rash assumption. However, one in 30 of the population was bearing arms, which again seems to me a pretty good index of something you could call total war. Under Huerta, of course, military spending rose dramatically. We have very poor figures, so I'm not even going to bother give, giving them. Revenue began to fall because the economy suffered and Huerta lost territory, and the peso fell with it. So you get the beginnings in 1913 into 1914 of a very serious uh, economic crisis building up. And in fact, even if you just took the cost of military spending, it would not tell you the whole story by a long way, because a lot of the cost of the war was borne by local communities who were just extorted by both the uh, military, the regular army on the one hand, and by the revolutionaries on the other. And there are constant complaints in the documents, if you look at, again, at songs, ballads, you look at oral accounts, some of which are quite informative, um, constant complaints of the military, more so the federal military, uh, taking resources, taking the harvest, taking uh, animals, and so on. However, the, the federal army still had, on the whole, better military technology. Um, this is an example from 1913, uh, as you can see, sort of field artillery and machine guns and things of that kind. Um, and this was partly because it had arms to begin with, and also Huerta was able to import a lot of arms, initially from the US, the US did not initially prevent this, also from Europe and Japan. And even after the US boycotted the Huerta government, that became American policy late in 1913, Huerta could still import arms in large quantities from Europe and Japan, which he did. The great problem of Huerta and the central government was though they had plenty of arms, they couldn't get the men to use them. Now this is a very staged uh, picture of recent recruits into the federal army, and the way that the federal army got recruits was essentially by forced conscription. Uh, by what was known as the leva, which we would loosely call the press gang, by forcibly recruiting people uh, who had no choice. This had quite a long history in Mexico. It had gone on in the 19th century. It was much hated. The military was not something people volunteered to go into. I mean, in terms of the rank and file. And so the army, as it went through this rapid expansion, had to just literally pull people off the street. We read lots of stories of people like coming out of bullfights on a Sunday, coming out of the cinemas, new cinemas, just being hauled off to the barracks to join the army. Tram drivers in Mexico City warned their friends, don't get off at this stop because that's where the military are waiting to grab you. And indeed in some areas, like northern Puebla, which was a very remote Indian region which had been marginal to the revolution, it was the demands of the army, the forced conscription, which drove hitherto peaceful communities to rebellion. Now, the other thing which obviously followed from this form of forced recruitment is that the, fed the, the federal uh, rank-and-file soldiers uh, had very low morale. Um, they didn't want to be there. They deserted if they could. Given a chance, they switch over to the revolutionary side. And there are many examples of battles uh, through 1913 into 1914 that the revolutionaries won 
above all because of the low morale of the federal. The classic case with Pancho Villa up in the Battle of Tierra Blanca near Ciudad Juarez at the end of 1913. Uh, I'll touch on this again in a minute. Pancho Villa was not actually a great tactician, but he often won his battles because he put the fear of God into the enemy and they would crack and run. And so morale was an absolutely crucial factor. However, for the revolutionaries, Villa and others, to win, they had to make this very difficult transition from decentralised, hit-and-run, local guerrilla warfare to something resembling conventional warfare with large armies, well-supplied, possessing rifles and machine guns and artillery. I mean, you just couldn't defeat the central government unless you could do that. So 1913 uh, into 14 sees this really, I think, crucial sort of paradigmatic shift Two figures are central to this. This is Álvaro Obregón, who was the leader up in Sonora in the northwest, who really was the sort of great Napoleonic figure, the great strategic genius of the revolution. He'll come back in a minute. And he, up in Sonora, was the first to really pioneer the formation of an effective conventional revolutionary army. He had the advantage, A, that Sonora was a long way away from Mexico City. It was quite remote, hard to get at. B, it was on the border with Arizona, uh, and California, which meant they could export particularly cattle and copper to get foreign exchange, and they could import guns and ammunition, initially illegally, contraband, and then legally. And lastly, Sonora was unusual because the entire state government, or pretty much the entire state government, went over to the revolution in opposition to the military dictatorship. Elsewhere it, it was different, but this gave them organisation uh, as well as resources. At the same time, a similar process, but more chaotically piecemeal, was happening. Oops. Um, yeah, I guess that's all right. I thought I had Pancho Villa. I've got Zapata. Yeah, it doesn't still it fits the argument perfectly well. A similar process of formation of larger armies was going on down south in Morelos under the leadership of the, the well-known peasant leader Emiliano Zapata. Now, the problem for Zapata and the people down in Morelos was, A, they were a long way from the border, they couldn't import things at all easily, and they couldn't export, they didn't have the resources. They had sugar. In some ways, the whole point of the Zapatista revolution was to destroy sugar, so they couldn't export that either. And so the Zapatista revolution always remained much more localised and limited. They did make a transition to conventional warfare. They managed to put together armies of about 5,000 to contest particular um, battles, but it was never as far-going and as thorough as up in the north. This is linked to the fact also that the Zapatista army, uh, because of its close links to the, to the peasantry, to the village, uh, to some extent had to follow the harvest cycle. And when the rains came in the spring, people wanted to go home and plant and harvest. You notice there's a, a, a clear cycle in Zapatista campaigning, always more active latter part of the year, early part, then everyone starts to go home. The northern armies, particularly those of Obregón and uh, Pancho Villa, I'm going to come to him in just a second, uh, were much more socially diverse, less linked to peasant villages. They included railroad workers, bandits I mentioned, muleteers, larger middle-class component. And so they were able, I think, more effectively and rapidly to make the transition to highly mobile conventional forces who could undertake much more long-distance campaigns. I mean, Obregón's own uh, autobiography, which is sort of one damn battle after another, is called Ocho Mil Kilometros en Campania, 8,000 miles on campaign. So he got around quite a lot. Um, Initially, the uh, northern rebels were also constricted by an American boycott of arms, and they could only get ar around that by smuggling. Um, so you have a lot of stories about how people smuggled arms out of the US and into the north. But eventually, uh, in early 1914, the Woodrow Wilson administration in the US made a pretty decisive commitment to support the revolution against Huerta, uh, we won't go into the whys and wherefores of that, but this meant that the boycott was lifted and the northern revolutionaries, particularly Obregón and Villa, could import as many arms as they could pay for. They had resources, they therefore could import. And the result was the sort of final consummation. Oh, there's Pancho Villa, I think he got it, I got him slightly out of place. There he is, I mean, you can see that they're fairly well armed already, but what they now were able to do in early 1914 was to create sizable conventional armies um, using railroads, northern Mexico well served with railroads, um, large movements of troops, uh, plus another example of the sort of troops on the a troop train, 
And, of course, this is now when the famous soldaderas really become important, uh, not so much because of their contribution to the fighting, which they didn't do by and large, but as the sort of unofficial commissariat of the army. They're the people who do the foraging, the cooking, who look after the troops, who often have their own children to look after. And so, as someone said, a Viesta army on the move is a bit like a kind of folk migration of entire families, large numbers, travelling particularly north to south as they prosecute the campaign uh, against uh, Huerta. That's the iconic figure of the, the soldadera on, on the left. Again, she's looking out from a train. Um, another feature of the war which develops in this conventional phase is you begin to see more similarities with what we think of as European warfare. Now, you wouldn't probably call these trenches. They're more like sort of foxholes or sort of mini parapets. Um, but clearly the logic of open conventional warfare was you needed some degree of protection uh, uh, like this. Uh, there is a more conventional uh, trench, that's the Battle of Torreon in the spring of 1914. So the nature of the technology obviously required Mexico in prosecuting war to uh, approximate much more to the nature of warfare in Europe. Now, the final phase, uh, I'm getting close to my conclusion, is sometimes known as the War of the Winners. And this was the last big set of campaigns that determined who would win and who would control Mexico. By the summer of 1914, as the First World War starts, Huerta is defeated, the old regime collapses, the federal army is broken up. So all that is left is the various revolutionary armies, but they and their leaders fail to agree on any kind of settlement. That's happening in the late 1914, early 1915 period. And the result is a third big bout of still conventional warfare, but now involving two rival revolutionary armies or coalitions, led loosely by Villa on the one hand, Carranza and Obregón on the other. Now there's much debate about what this was about, did it matter, what was at stake. I won't get into the politics of it, but clearly in military terms this was very important. Uh, this is the lead-up to the Battle of Celaya, uh, which is one of the first of the crucial battles. It doesn't tell us very much, except it's kind of flat, and it's uh, farming country. And what happened at the Battle of Celaya, and to some extent in the subsequent battles in Leon, otherwise known as Trinidad, and then finally Aguas Calientes, the ones that decide who's going to win, is that Obregón from Sonora proves to be much the better general. And he again does so, and not least by using uh, tactics which have also been developed or are being developed in Europe uh, at the same time. Uh, we know a good deal about this because there's quite an interesting book by a Swedish uh, mercenary soldier of fortune who sort of washed up in Mexico at the time of the revolution, joined the revolution, finished up alongside Obregón, and he comments, and I think he didn't make this up, Obregón was extremely interested in learning about how war was conducted by European armies, and so he's interested to know how you use machine guns, how you use trenches, uh, barbed wire, all the sort of panoply of modern warfare as being practiced in Europe, and he brings it to bear in Mexico as well. And indeed his victories over Villa in the spring and summer of 1915 are basically down to a superior tactics. I mean, putting it rather crudely, it's not quite as simple as this. Villa continued to rely very heavily on mass cavalry attacks, which, of course, the First World War showed this as well. This was futile in the face of a well-dug-in, entrenched defence with machine guns, rifles, with barbed wire, with trenches. Now, uh, Clearly nothing happened in Mexico to resemble the Western Front. I mean, you don't get long lines of trenches and long, protracted, static warfare. Um, and there are various reasons why in Mexico that would have not have made sense. The expanses are much greater. The battles, though they could go on for several days or weeks, um, were not as static. However, remember that the First World War had an eastern front, which we often overlook. Uh, good studies, uh, Norman Stone among others. That also was a war of movement over huge expanses with rather little trench warfare. And in a way, what's going on in Mexico resembles that. It is much more fluid and open. And as I say, Obregón really won by virtue of importing and using military technology more successfully. This also meant he had to supply his forces, and therefore the supply, in his case coming up from the Gulf Coast by train across rather hostile Zapatista territory, was crucial, and the running of the railroads in many ways was absolutely key to his successful campaign. 
uh, you, you had to have good guys running the railroads, knowing how to keep them delivering the munitions on time. Now, there have been arguments as to the relative superiority of these two armies. Uh, John Hart makes some rather extravagant claims as to why Obregon won, which as usual means you blame the US because the US gave um, Obregon lots of weaponry and when they sold arms to Villa they sold him wooden bullets and things like that. I find this all pretty far-fetched and the evidence of the several battles is that these were very closely matched armies. There's no evidence that one lost because it was uh, ill-provided with munitions and indeed the Villistas as they lost had shorter and shorter lines of communication, which would have favoured them that they still managed to lose. And in the course of this fighting, there was even one interesting, I just want to quickly mention one interesting battle that has actually quite a lot of Western Front characteristics. Now, this is the Battle of El Ebano in the spring of 1915. The map doesn't tell you a whole lot. Basically, El Ebano is the approach to Tampico, the big oil port, so it's strategically very important, and it's marshy, wet country uh, so that you can actually fence off and defend a particular stretch very effectively. The trenches, they did have proper trenches built about 30 miles across, so not west, not quite the western front, but this produced for about two to three months a form of static trench warfare. The, the, the Carancistas who were defending Tampico built trenches, they had again barbed wire, they had big searchlights. And the battle took a similar form as the others that I mentioned. The Vista cavalry were attacking. The Vista did also develop trenches. Uh, at one point, you even had... Um, you can't talk about the First War. Oops, sorry. Yeah, they also used airplanes uh, for reconnaissance. Bombing was useless, but as reconnaissance, they were quite useful. And uh, just as you had, between the lines, fraternisation, that's the famous you know, Christmas Day football match between the English and the Germans which the Germans won. <laughs> Not actually on penalties, but they won. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've jumped ahead with him. Uh, there was also some evidence of sort of cross-trench fraternisation going on at Elebano. It so happened that the, the Easters had lots of liquor. Not sure what you can draw a conclusion. Lots of tequila. The Carancistas had lots of cattle and beef. So they actually traded. The trenches were quite close, and they traded across the trench lines, somewhat similar to the Western Front. Right, um, we'll go back another five minutes. Yeah. The last bit is just to say something very quickly about the consequences of all this. If you accept the argument these were both total wars, in terms of the demands, the numbers, the cost, the, cost, the casualties, and even some of the characteristics, what were the longer-term consequences? Well, if you're going to fight a total war with citizen armies, you usually have to make them promises. You have to have something sometimes called a social pact, well, we know in the First World War, they met, uh, Lloyd George promised homes fit for heroes. I don't think actually that many were built. Votes for women did come after, and perhaps in part because of the war. By and large, I think the story in Europe, I'm not an expert, is that the real social pact had to wait the Second World War and the whole foundation of the welfare state. Nevertheless, the idea that sort of mass warfare of this kind creates a demand and some promises which may be delivered seems to me a valid point. Now, Obregon, the reason he's cropped up again is because he was the great exponent in revolutionary politics. He won the battles. He became president in the early 20s. He was the great exponent of the philosophy those who had fought the war deserved the benefits. So whether you're an individual, perhaps a high-ranking general, even an ordinary soldier, if you had fought, you had certain uh, benefits to come your way. Uh, or indeed, if you're a community that had distinguished itself fighting for the revolution, you then had the right to particularly claim land. Now, there was a big land reform program. We can see here, this is one of the first distributions of land up in the north in 1913 by Lucio Blanco. Uh, the idea that if you'd fought, you had the right to, uh, to appeal, to petition for land, and the right to get it became absolutely central to sort of Mexican political economy in the early 20s. Sometimes this was done on a quite personal basis. Now, this is Pancho Villa. You recognise him sitting there on the left. After he was amnestied in 1920, they gave him a big hacienda up in the north in Durango. He settled down, kind of Tio, with a lot of his old veterans and mates and compadres, and they just made some money running the hacienda. didn't last long, because in 1923 the government had him assassinated. He was seen as a political risk. Nevertheless, the idea of your old leader, your caudillo, with his supporters settling on a plot of land uh, was quite common. There are a number of other cases... And, of course, the land reform then became more extensive, more formalised, more systematic. 
reaching a peak in the 1930s with Cardenas on the right again distributing land. But it seems to me this kind of the bond, the promise implicit in the war was quite important. And beyond that, we can see lots of examples where if you were a revolutionary veteran who'd fought, you could make claims. Now, one suspects quite a lot of these claims were false. You see these sort of CVs, the number of people who claimed to have fought in the Battle of Celaya, you know, was many more than actually ever did. But it was clearly a way to get political uh, benefits. In addition, of course, the end of the war meant something like 200,000 men were released from the Revolutionary Army back into, quote, civilian life. But, of course, many didn't go back into civilian life. Quite a lot continued a sort of paramilitary uh, career. Uh, there was a lot of paramilitary forces in Mexico in the 20s, particularly attached to local communities, which would often be political springboards to power. Uh, many of the local bosses who populate Mexico, political bosses in the 20s, had come up through the ranks of the revolutionary military. And political violence was very common in Mexico right through the 20s. We think of Mexico being violent today. Mexico today is a haven of peace compared to the homicide rates that prevailed in the 1920s and even into the 1930s. And the sheer distribution of weapons, I mean, the number of guns that were floating around in Mexico in the 20s helped encourage this. Lastly, the revolution also meant that veterans became a significant political force. And Tom has done quite a lot of work on this, so some of what I say here touches on that. Now, this again is, of course, very similar to Europe. One of the real consequences of the First World War was to release in society a lot of ex-veterans who then begin to serve in paramilitary forces like the Italian Squadristi or the German Freikorps, even the British Black and Tans in Ireland. Most of those in Europe tend to be on the right, although you'd have to say the Soviet Revolution was also a revolution of soldiers as well. In Mexico... The veterans from the revolution are rather more perhaps politically on the left, particularly the agonistas, the ones demanding land. But I think over time, the tendency was for those identified with the veteran cause to shift more to the right. Now, some of this was simply defending the veterans, getting pensions and benefits for them. But to the extent the veterans played a political role, it seems to be noticeable that by the 1930s, Many of the old leaders and their supporters are adopting what you might call more radical right uh, postures. The, um, I have a couple of pictures of veterans. Now, he's a perfectly respectable old Zapatista veteran from about the 1970s, so got nothing against him. But in the 1930s, you start to get groups like these guys, the so-called camisas doradas, the gold shirts. You're a sort of fascistic group in the 30s. You've got to get your right color shirt. These were the gold shirts who claimed to be from Pancho Villa's elite squadron. The leader, Nicolas Fernandez, claimed to have been a, a close compadre of Pancho Villa. Uh, again, I think this may be a little bit embellished. But clearly, by the 1930s, there was an appeal to radical right uh, opinion, which had a real uh, resonance amongst uh, veterans, partly because they considered the revolution under Cardenas to be veering much too much to the left. Uh, the last point I'll mention, I did literally one sentence because I don't want to get into it, is speculation. It is possible, I think, that some of the financial policies of the Mexican government in the 20s, particularly in the 30s, uh, in terms of rather heterodox policies of money supply and Keynesianism, may have some connection to wartime experience. I don't want to push that because it's a speculation. So, to conclude, we'll, we'll, we'll finish up with another soldadera just to end up. It seems to me that you could make an argument that what happened in Mexico clearly was a revolution, it was a civil war, but it also was a kind of total war which had some of the consequences that we see in Europe um, based on the fact you had mass mobilisation, heavy human and material costs, a legacy of violence, uh, and, and also the injection into society of some military uh, expertise and military values, all of which are uh, somewhat similar, I think, to what happened in Europe, and, of course, very distinct in Latin America, because I don't think any other Latin American country that I can think of in the early 20th century went through this experience or experienced these same consequences. I'll stop there. Thank you.